Hello everyone, my name is Josh Gilliland, attorney blogger on Bowtie Law, and with Jessica Meterson on The Legal Geeks. With me today is my buddy Drew Lewis, who is eDiscovery Counsel at Recommind, and we wanted to talk about the EEOC v. SVT case, which is an awesome opinion by Judge Paul Cherry out of Indiana. He's written about the form of reduction before. I've blogged about that case, and he's a really cool judge, and this is a great opinion. So, Drew, how are you doing? Doing very well. How are you doing? Uh, excellent. It's, uh, we have a heat wave in California. It's blue skies, and it is, it's a lovely day here. There we go. That sounds good. I, I love all the uh, the letters we had in that case name there, though. So we, you need to maybe bring in, maybe we can reference BYOD at some point so we can just add more uh, alphabet soup here. Exactly, exactly. Well, we'll have the FRCP. And <laughs> That's we'll, right. So, I mean, there, there's, no, there's no shortage of an acronyms this, this baby can have. So. That's right. Oh, and by the way, congratulations on the new baby. Thank so. you very much. Thank you. So, Drew, for, for everyone listening, could you break down uh, what this case is about? Sure. Uh, let me, we'll try to keep this part as straightforward as possible so we can jump into the interesting, interesting issues. Uh, it came to the uh, court as a, uh, what, I guess, a motion to compel uh, agreed upon format of the defendant's discovery responses in a uh, EEOC, in a case involving the EOC. Uh, essentially, the EOC makes a very specific uh, form of production request, and for one reason or another, as we'll look at, the defendant doesn't comply with that request in the least, instead arguing they have produced their documents in accordance with industry standard. Um, as you might imagine, the EEOC says, hey, you've stripped a lot of functionality out of these documents. We asked for native. You've produced TIFFs. You've produced uh, flat PDFs without any sort of ability to really search and call this stuff. So let's go back to the, uh, go back to the well and see what we can do over. Um, the one point that we'll address that's worth noting kind of up front there were a series of uh, communications that were intended to be meet and confers, but as we'll kind of explore, it was the traditional drive-by uh, meet and confer with a series of letters and emails back and forth, which, as it turned out, was not very helpful to, to getting this case uh, ready uh, or where it needed to be to be ready to produce documents. And, and I might, again, I wasn't there, and like we're opining based upon the opinion, uh, but part of me... You know, to, to break down the facts, when you look at what the EEOC was requesting with concordance load files and uh, Excel files to be produced as native file formats and some things to be produced as, as static images with metadata. And I mean, the only funky part of this opinion is the fact that Judge Cherry was referring to TIFFs as being near native, which is, I don't know where that was coming from because they're not and near native would be an extracted text rendering that you'd be looking at it in a review platform. So I thought that was a little weird, where, and I don't know where that came from. I actually, I checked that, and I think um, it's kind of the ter terminology is based off the EDRM's model or, or uh, one of their definitions. If you look at, say, a near native, what was it, is basically a TIFF plus extracted text plus made it at, metadata would qualify as a near native. But I agree whenever I read that at first and the way they kept referring to it as near natives, I thought these aren't near natives. These are just static TIFF images. I, I don't see the, the near native component of it there. Yeah. You need the underlying ESI for it to be near native for right. that rendering and in, in the review platform of their choice. So I just, I thought that was a little strange, but it was probably a translation from an affidavit to brief to the judge. Right. About, but that was the only, 
Well, let me ask you one, one thing too before we uh, move off that. What about, because I don't think the database information ever be, came into this, but native production of a database, right? Like what about that in the, in the form of production request itself there that, I mean, really like, going to produce the entirety of the database natively uh, is that best practices you think, or is that be careful what you ask for uh, requesting party? Well, that there, there's a little of that and it, it dealt with the Kronos database, mm -hmm. which I've, I've blogged about this before. This has come up before. And Kronos can export out to Excel, can export out to PDF. It can be fully searched. It's a, I don't want to say it's a CRM, but it's its a management database for hiring that a lot of companies use in, in an HR content context that can be searched. And so you can, have right. the, you, know, you can have your people go in every day just as they search in Salesforce. They're looking in the system and it can export out to Excel, which would be uh, a reasonably usable form. And while I wouldn't necessarily want a copy of Kronos, I would want the data because that's the important part of this, uh, just as the data out of, say, Campaigner would be for all the contacts who are in there. So there's, there's a little of that. But when we get into the meet and confer, because we get, you know, the email exchanges and the letters of producing this format, which is, some native, some uh, near native production, which is totally fine. I think there was a knowledge gap between the attorney at the EEOC and the attorney at the law firm in what they were communicating. Yes. Now, I'm a big fan of probably sitting down in person and probably doing the geek to geek meeting to go like, hey, this is what we have. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to solve that and getting folks to go like, oh yeah, here's what we got. We're good to go. Let's make it happen. Right. Uh, but I think this is where English as a common language was causing a failure to communicate. Sure. Because I don't think they realized what was being asked for them or the law firm didn't have the internal knowledge to understand what was being asked of them. Yeah. And this, this is a point that you know, we discussed beforehand and, and, make it clear from both of our perspectives we're not criticizing the lawyer involved the firm involved anything like that this is this is a but it's it's an issue that we have to address that there was a a knowledge gap here and it's evident as you read this opinion that the the producing party uh, the representation that they had there was some lack, knowledge lacking here because as you read it you say look I think if you just read the rules, you would come to the understanding that this production is not sufficient. Um, you know, whether it's the, hey, if you don't object to a form of production and just produce without saying anything, you run the risk of you know, having to do it over again. That's one of those things that I think just a little bit of time spent in the rule book and, and the comments would have advised an attorney to say, I can't do it this way. Um, why that happens, you know, I think a lot of it's just, they, the view might be, well, look, this is a case. We've had you know hundreds of these cases before. It's cookie cutter litigation. This is how we did it, did it in previous instances, and nobody said anything. That becomes a powerful um, habit to break, but it's a bad habit that needs to be broken. Agreed. And the other part is you know the meaningful meet and confer, where you actually have the lit support managers or the e-discovery attorneys sit down and talk about not the merits of the case, not the stuff that you're going to fight about in depot and motion practice, but what's the common platform that we're going to use here? Where are the, where's the data living? 
how do we get this information? How do we capture it? Uh, from there, how are we going to review it? All those things are the technical things that people shouldn't fight about. And there are so many cases that come out daily where you see that people are just fighting about that stuff as opposed to solving those issues. Right. And, and I think you made the point in the blog, whether it was this one or a prior one, where you have these disputes on form production. Sometimes it can just be this is part of the gamesmanship. Yeah. And it's unfortunate when that happens. Uh, unfortunately here, I mean, you have a real issue of saying, look, I need it in a searchable format. And I'm a big, a big advocate of when possible produce natively. And I was going to throw this out to you. As I read the, the rules, I think that if you look at the order of the, the clauses in there, I think the rules suggest that producing natively would be the default and it would be the exception to the rule to produce it in a, uh, you know, you should either produce them in the, uh, in the course that they're usually kept or organize and label them, which is implying you, you kind of modify them and put them in something else. So I, I take the position of native should be the default and this tiffing and near natives and so that should be the, the, uh, the exception to the rule. And I, I fully agree with that. There, you know, you start driving up costs when you start converting the static images Mm -hmm. you know, it increases processing time, and of course, that varies with whatever processing engine that you got you know, that the firm's using or the company's using. So, like that is an X factor. But you also generally increase the cost when you do that. Right. I've seen service providers, you know, triple the cost of a production by having it be static images. And why not produce static? only what you need to redact. And a lot of those review platforms allow you to, you know, create a tiff on the fly mm -hmm. for, for when that situation arises. So uh, there, there's that sort of thing. But let's, you know, one of the reasons why I like this opinion, I really like Judge Cherry, is it's basic Iraq. He yeah, start, he started, absolutely. You know, here's the issue. And then we get legal standard, and he does a beautiful breakdown of Rule 34B2EII and, uh, and, and Rule 26, which is like, oh, rock on, Your Honor. I mean, he just he breaks it down. Right. And then, you know, here are the facts, and now we apply the facts to the rules, and here we go. Well, and I did think the readability of this, because, you know, this is an issue that you could easily get lost in the, in the ether on. The, the readability was, was very, uh, very high in this regard because he, does, he breaks it down, he simplifies it. And, again, I think it comes back to he leads with the rule, and as soon as you read the rule and as soon as you see the factual, the first paragraph of the, factual, the fact pattern, you say, yeah, I see what the problem is. You agreed to a form of production, at least implicitly if not explicitly, you never said anything about it. The requesting party is within their right to request a form. You didn't do it that way. I mean, it, it sets up so easily. And this, this goes back to this issue with, with the firm on the defense side here of saying, you know, young lawyers or lawyers in general, they need a place where they can get this type of education so that this is, my concern is, is that if this isn't rectified, and you and I discussed this as well, what's missing in this order to me is what's the consequence? Yeah. Okay, I understand what the remedy the judge's fashioned is. Let's go back, go play nice, meet and confer, do it over. What's the consequence? Because my concern is if there's not a consequence at the judicial level, then we start running into at some point in time, 
do lawyers that have this happen to them consistently, they start getting into ethical issues. Is this something that, and, and between you and my, you and I, I'd much rather be sanctioned by a court, if I had to choose, I don't want to have either of these, but if I had to choose, I'd rather be sanctioned by a court than censured by the Board of Professional Responsibility because this happened and did you read the rules? And, and again, this isn't criticizing any lawyers who are involved. This is complicated stuff, but it's like, you know, Judge Francis, you know, uh, mentioned at Legal Tech earlier this year, you know, knowledge of discovery is, it's like knowledge of civil procedure. How can you in this day and age go forward without, you know, without that, uh, the requisite knowledge to handle the e-discovery in the case? I think there are a couple factors in play here. One, we have discretion with the federal judges and who can go, things were, mistakes were made, you know, to borrow from Reagan and Iran-Contra, mistakes were made. But the court probably didn't feel like sanctioning anyone because of it, going like, you guys, you guys can work this out. Yes. On the flip side, when you look at California, if you're in front of the discovery judge on a dispute, somebody's getting sanctioned. Right. And so right. there are factors there that in federal court, it might turn on the personality of the judge, but in state court, it depends what the rule is in state court. Right. If you have a discovery dispute, because in California, somebody's taken a hit. Yeah. For oh, yeah. And especially when it's avoidable. In California, our rules of court actually break down everything that should be discussed at the meet and confer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I were a judge in California going like, well, did you, did you discuss preservation and just go down the list? And if the answer to all of them is no, somebody's not going to be happy with right. what happened there. And then this one, the court probably could have looked at this in good faith and gone like, they never really got together and talked about it. Well, and that's the point where I think the EEOC loses some of the, the moral high ground I think that they have in this decision is that as you read the portion about the meet, what type of meet confer happened, it's clear that neither side took it seriously. And, and the opinion, I, I think, indicates there might have been some gamesmanship going on here whenever the EEOC realizes that it's not you know, symmetrical uh, knowledge of the issue. The EOC has a great lit support person who's very knowledgeable of it. So, so efficient and effective action. The judge suggests that, you know, perhaps he is in the best position to help out the defendants here. Um, but I think that that was the part of saying it's that failure of the face-to-face -face meeting. I know it's time consuming. I know it's difficult. I know that we feel there's so many things we'd rather do than meet and confer, but in the cases that, that I either, you know, work directly in or still participate in now, the cases where there's meaningful meet and confer, discovery disputes, I won't say they don't happen, but they become the exception, not the rule. And in the ones where they don't occur, then, yeah, it's disputes the whole time. Especially where things go right is where you have somebody like the lit support manager that the EEOC has. If both parties have somebody like that. Right. And a lot of the big firms have those professionals. A lot of the, the mid-sized and small firms use a service provider who act in that role. And if you have that taking place, you know, that should avoid those problems. Because when, sure. I, when I read the EEOC communications, it's like, okay, this seems pretty straightforward to me. But over half my career is focused on electronic discovery now, and this is, you know, pretty straightforward. If you start quizzing me on how to go out and do, you know, a, a uh, you know, depot of a doctor and a med mal case, you know, I'm going to have some brushing up to do because I don't do that stuff anymore. 
on a regular basis. Conversely, the lawyers who are lacking knowledge about e-discovery are doing those type of cases and probate and workers' comp and everything like that daily. That's what yes. they're billing each hour. And they just they haven't learned e-discovery probably nine times out of ten. And that's that doesn't make them bad lawyers. It just means this is an area where everyone can grow. Absolutely. And I think that to me that was the ultimate takeaway from the case is saying, you know, how do we how do we move forward? How do we fix this particular problem? And whether it's, you know, at the law school level, I think there has to be a greater emphasis on real. I mean, I sometimes think about you talk to people who are in law school and you talk to them about civil procedure. They spend months on Penoyer v. Neff and, you know, Asahi Metal. It's like those are important cases. But honestly, Judge, how often did you have a personal jurisdiction issue come up in your run-of-the-mill case? Compare that to how often did you have an issue about electronic discovery come up? Where, where are we spending our time on? And then as we get out into practice, you know, it, it becomes, again, if you're in, in the firm of a certain size that has certain resources that will send you to the, the best conferences in the country, great. But what about for the practitioners who are you know, in the, the middle class lawyers, if you will, who say, well, I don't have a $3,000 CLE budget every year. How do I get the same information? That's what, that's what I love. I love your podcast, your blog, and things that are like that because you're getting the information out there at a, in a way where it's accessible. It's kind of open source legal education. I'm saying, look, we, we need a Khan Academy for legal education. That's the next step is Khan Academy needs to have an e-discovery section perhaps. Well, and, and I really appreciate the, the kind words, but I, I think of my, my friend, she's trial counsel at one of the big insurance companies, and she's undefeated in the cases that she's handled for this insurance company so far in the past year. So, like, way to go. She's, she's kicking ass. Love her dear. Just, just keep that up. But they have her at a trial academy for this week, sharpening mm-hmm. her skills. Right. That sort of thing would be fantastic in e-discovery. You know, the, you know, doc review boot camp might sound like people want to scream and run into the night, but <laughs> knowing how these, these tools work and the benefit of visual analytics and understanding what TAR can do for you, whether it's initial disclosures or identifying your cases, uh, that's really, really gold. And that's the sort of thing that we should be seeing because you don't learn e-discovery in a vacuum. Right, right. There could be Pinoyer v. Neff issues in PJ when you look at online commerce, if there isn't a forum selection clause in that clickware agreement. True. But that's way geeky. (laughs) But I was thinking about that while I was in law school back, back at McGeorge, hanging out at Misha's Coffee Shop in Davis, and reading that and then reading Carnival Cruise going like, wait a minute, what about all the e-commerce? And, right, right. You know, 15 years later, it's still around. So. <laughs> but but focus, I, I think part of the other solution that, that's in this case, the EEOC deserves a gold star for having their lit support manager write one heck of a good affidavit educating the judge. I've been writing about this for a long time saying you need to explain to the court the tech and what happens. And that's where guys like us could do it. But having somebody 
you know, like a lit support manager go in and explain concordance is the industry standard. The fact that the other side is saying we produced according to the industry standard, which for some reason was non-searchable tests from an, from Excel. Right. That's you don't get a Christmas card after doing that. that that's <laughs> really that's really really cold. Uh, yeah. If if you do that sort of thing, and and that lit support manager did a very nice job, especially with how they broke down the issues uh, in the opinion, and the court cites twice to the affidavit saying, "Yeah, all right, I see the issues here," and and to right. to borrow from the opinion that he the lit support manager explained. Uh, that the static images of the spreadsheets were unusable because they cannot be searched or manipulated for analysis, and also being knowledgeable about how the Kronos system worked, uh, the lit support manager could offer information as well, countering the undue burden argument that the other side made as well and trying to argue that they weren't reasonably available or reasonably accessible as well. So that was... That was a really good tactical move on their part in educating the judge with the facts because you need that in order to understand the application of the rules. Right. Uh, going back to the um, the reasonably, reasonably accessible argument, too, what did you uh, think of the attempt to say, hey, it's data in a third party's hands, not not our data? I mean, it's one that uh, that's an argument that maybe would have carried the day 10 years ago. But, I mean, at this point in time, are, are you – surprised to still see that argument advance or you say, no, I, I think there's probably more of that thinking out there than we realize. There, there are, there's a surprising number of people who think about that. I just blogged about another case where the plaintiff producing party argued that their own Gmail account was not reasonably accessible and, right. and couldn't produce their own Gmail. Of course, it got wrong. You, you, you got this. You're going to pay someone to do it. That's just, that's just the fact of life. Now, when you look at something like Kronos, yeah, it's, it's a touch more complicated because you're dealing with a, a dynamic database on how information is maintained. But all those online third-party databases that you have an account for, that you your credit cards build monthly for, that allows you to search and sort and filter and call and all those things to find, hey, here's everyone in North Dakota that's a prospect, the, you know, that, that can be exported out to Excel. And so right. you can't argue that you don't have control over that. And so I, that was, again, not the right argument to make. And that should have been addressed with a, with a really good meet and confer to have helped the other side through this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so what, what, I mean, what's your big, big picture takeaway moving forward from that? I mean, again, for me, it's the native production thing. I, I, I really, really am a big fan of that. Try to stress that as often as possible. But even that seems to, it's not really where the, the you know, rubber meets the road in this case here. It's more of one. I think just lawyers need to really watch out. I think what, what, what's your big picture thought aside from what was already on the blog. Have you, have you kind of thought a little bit more about a, the big takeaway? A couple things come to mind because you have a lot of attorneys out there across the entire country who think e-discovery is something that other people deal with, that it's not their problem. And yes, it is because it's your name on the pleadings. You know, it's your bar card on the line. Why risk your career and not educating yourself about this? And civil procedure is the foundation of all litigation. Right. 
why would you not pay attention to that? And it's weird. I talk to people and a lot of them still have that mindset and it confuses me that they, they think the little people deal with that. And it's like, no, <laughs> dude, the little person's you in that case. And you really, you, you can't do that. You need to understand it. That doesn't mean that you should be able to be a PMK, but you should know how to interact with your client. Right. And you should know when you bring in an e-discovery attorney or a lit support manager and somebody to help with the tech side of it, which all, again, boils down to we have this the practice issue and an education issue. And this is where, you know, I don't know if it's if having bar, state bar associations mandate, you know, some e-discovery knowledge as part of competency the same way that we have other responsibilities with, you know, substance abuse and elimination of bias, you know, those, those other worthy requirements that we have in our ethics requirements. But this goes to the heart of competency. It does. And, you know, for, for me, I often will use this as, a, as an easy to understand what it means here to be competent. Because I agree with you. I think that some lawyers say, well, I, you know, if I, if I wanted to know all this about technology, I would have done something else. And I don't know. You don't have to become proficient in it. The, the line that I'll use is from the movie Pulp Fiction where Jules and Vincent are discussing about uh, uh, Mia Wallace being on a pilot. And, you know, uh, Vincent doesn't know what that is. And he says, I don't, I don't watch television. He, but Jules responds, he says, yeah, but you, you are aware there's this invention called a television. And on this invention, they show TV shows. To me, I think that's what I'm thinking when I'm talking about this competence level. You don't have to be a computer scientist to understand this. But you have to read the rules and understand to know what you don't know. And we need to have better resources uh, that are out there because this is a situation where, a very potentially embarrassing uh, set of you know uh, set of events has gone down. Where's the safety net? Where's the person that this lawyer or firm can reach out to and say, "Hey, we we don't know what's going on here, Your Honor. Like we need we need some help. Um, you know, are there special master programs out there? Are the vendors or your know, companies like mine? Are we doing a good enough job reaching that segment of the market to say?" Everybody has an e-discovery problem. Whenever I hear people say, well, I don't really have e-discovery in my cases, and I think about the charts that, you know, figures I've seen on worldwide data volume growth, corporate volume growth, uh, personal volume growth, you think, who do you represent? If you don't have e-discovery in your cases, who are you representing? Yeah, some so, client in 1985? I mean, like, how right. is that? Do they have beepers? You know, right. it's... It's in rotary phones. I mean, it's a really weird thing to hear a lawyer say, like, ah, oh, your discovery is not a problem, as they're, you know, setting a Netflix show to, you know, to their queue from their phone to right. watch later. It's like, really? You're going to be that guy. You're going to be that guy who doesn't understand how to produce natively, but you will set something to record on your DVR from your phone. You're right. That guy. right. And it's, that's pretty, con you know, concerning to me. When you look at the lawyers who literally surround their practice and their lives with tech, and then they argue or claim to be a Luddite, right? All of a sudden, when it comes to actually talking to their clients and and using this, and that's just weird to me. It is, yeah. It's a very weird phenomenon, and it's it's a little disturbing because I we need to be competent and. Education is part of that, and the more I think about it, a weekend or a week-long boot camp might not hurt, and 
part of the challenge that we have is a lot of the service providers and software companies want big clients. You know, they're, they're, they want to go target corporate counsel and they want to go get big clients because, you know, they think that they can get, you know, 50 grand a month from somebody, you know, that they're sad. Right. Don't get me wrong. I am totally cool. If somebody wants to pay me 50 grand a month, I'm down with that. Right. You know, and, and, and businesses understandably believe in that, but there's a mid you know, tier of attorneys and who probably make up 92% of litigation in this country who are in the, the small to mid-sized firm. And I, I believe according to the ABA, they make up 70 some percent of right. the firms in this country are in that mid-sized category. And if we're not marketing to them because we're marketing towards the blue whale that's impossible to go out and catch, that's a huge problem for the discovery professional and something that everyone should do some soul searching about. Well, and on, on that note, I've got this upcoming month, I'm doing a, a series of CLEs. I'm doing one in Chicago, doing one in Minneapolis, going to do some other parts of the country over the course of the year. And that's really the thing, you know, wanting to get out that message and say, look, this isn't just, you know, the, the predictive coding show. This is how it fits into discovery as a, as a larger issue. And I think that's the type of thing. Anytime you can get some education on e-discovery, if you're a civil litigator, anytime it's offered, you need to give it a long, hard look because it's changing. Technology is changing it. Uh, the, the technology is, is outpacing the rule changes. I think lawyers would think, well, yeah, yeah, I've kept up with the amendments to the rules. I know what's going on. That's that's just but one issue here. There's all sorts of stuff. And, I, and I've often taken the position that say, this is a specialty like anything else. There's too many cases that come down every year to pretend like I can be an expert intellectual property attorney and an expert in e-discovery at the same time. I think I can do one exceptionally well. I think I can do two pretty good. And I think that too many lawyers are trying to load up their, their subject matter experts in too many different places. And they're trying to just say, hey, I know about discovery. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. And this is this case is, I think, illustrative what can happen when you kind of think, eh, it's no big deal. I, I think I understand this. It, it, it highlights the need to have somebody manage your discovery for you. Yeah. And to avoid you know, the cost of motion practice or risking your bar card. I mean, like, God knows how many times that's happened. Right. You know, and there's... <laughs> Ask the guys from the Qualcomm opinion how they feel. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. You know, you talk about lives destroyed or the uh, TD Bank case where, where another firm really, you know, it did not go well for them. And so there, there's a lot of, of risk out there that comes from not understanding e-discovery or having hubris about it. Right. You know, because this is not something you can bully opposition into. Because tech is tech. Right. Absolutely. But that's it. I I love a good Judge Cherry opinion because it's classic IRAC. Issue, rules, facts, analysis. And he did give everybody a chance to try to rectify the situation, which was good. Uh, Yes. He's a wonderful judge. And... Uh, like Fasciola, you know, he gives good nuts and bolts type opinions. Absolutely. Unlike Fasciola, sometimes Fasciola gets to swing for the fences and defend the Fourth Amendment and do other cool things. Right. But, 
but Cherry does a wonderful opinion here about the actual practice of law and live issues. And it's worth a read. And I encourage everyone to learn from it because he did a masterful job. And this also highlights the need. Have your expert educate the court. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, Drew, thank you for your time. And I hope all goes well in Tennessee. And next time you're in San Francisco, let me know and we'll grab lunch. I will definitely do that. Thank you so much. Definitely. Take care and we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks.